I mean, we might have committed tax fraud, but <laughs> we got a deal done. Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. My name is Sean Bolowski, and I'm a second-year NPP student. So right before I started to record this intro, I thought, you know, let's see what's going on in the world. I'm going to check the news, and for me, checking the news means I'm going to go scroll Twitter for a few minutes. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, these social media companies consume a lot of our time and possess quite a bit of power. There are plenty of examples of this, from the role of these platforms in disinformation campaigns to attempt to disrupt our elections, to Twitter's ban of Donald Trump, to recently Facebook banning news on its platform in Australia in response to a law that could force Facebook and Google to pay publishers if they host their content. Clearly, it's beyond time to have a responsible conversation about the policy framework necessary to deal with platforms that have rapidly amassed quite a bit of power. We're going to try to do that today. My co-host is Ben Feldman, who's pulling double duty. Ben is one of our producers and is a second-year accelerated MPP student. A couple summers ago, Ben interned in Berlin with the Syrian Archive, which is an organization that would basically mine these platforms for citizen-generated data as evidence of human rights violations in Syria. Ben and I then had a chance to speak with Dia Kayali, who is the Associate Director for Advocacy at Mnemonic, which is an organization that grew out of the Syrian archives to enable human rights defenders to use digital information to hold human rights abusers accountable. At Mnemonic, Dia focuses on the real-life impact of policy decisions made by lawmakers and technology companies about content moderation. And when we think about content moderation, these organizations have a very unique view and vested interest in the policy outcomes. So I hope you'll learn as much from Dia as I did. But first, let's talk to our co-host. Let's meet Ben. So, Ben, how is uh, how's your semester going? Well, taking a lot of challenging classes, so that's been keeping me busy. But uh, I enjoy that challenge. I will say that there's been recent spike in cases. Not gonna say it's tied to IFC and ISC holding in-person rush in Charlottesville in the last few weeks, but. That's uh, that's what it is, and so I've been uh, staying safe, live alone in my single room. Uh, just had a lot of work to keep me busy, so we're home stretch. That's where we're at, working on the APP and everything else. You know, not to get too sidetracked on the rush stuff. Um, and I saw President Ryan's, you know, basically like, oh, in hindsight. But the frustrating part about this, even since last March is that we kind of know how to prevent these spikes. We know what to do. It's not, quite frankly, it's not rocket science. Um, but to just keep, you know, making the the same, I don't want to say mistakes, but just the same, it, it's um, without a change in approach or a change in, in um change in approach, a change in policy, a change in attitude, you know, this stuff is just going to keep popping up. And it's unfortunate because we have the vaccine, right? And so it's just so frustrating that we're kind of in the home stretch here. Um, Yeah, I think I think frustrating is a a great word for it, because everybody is aware of where these cases are coming from, where the spiking cases is coming from, they just won't say it. And I don't really blame the first years for 
going to these events because they didn't really have a virtual option at all. And if I was first year at a university during a pandemic, I would definitely be seeking out those social connections that I didn't really get the chance to form in the last year of having to sit in my dorm and occasionally maybe go to a class or two. I mean, the, the adults, I mean, I say this like, you know, when I was 19, I was not capable of making a mature decision, I don't think. Uh, and so and when I say adults, I'm not saying that, you know, college students are certainly adults, but the people in charge, the authorities need to make that decision, right? And so, um, but anyway, it, it is incredibly unfortunate and it is really frustrating. Um, well, so Ben, you are, you are an accelerated student. And so you are, you know, finishing up, I guess this is your fifth year, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so why did you decide to enroll in Batten? Well, I'm maybe a little less removed from 19 than some of those postgrads. So <laughs> I can't say that it was a completely rational decision that ended me up here, but I, I think that one of the reasons that I came to UVA, it's hard to untie why I came to UVA and why I came to Batten. I think that one of the reasons I came to UVA was that I always knew that I would end up at Batten in some capacity. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do coming out of high school, but I knew that I was interested in public policy and I really liked the problem solving aspect of public policy. And I don't think that that's changed since my eighth grade civics class with uh, Mr. Paulus back at Gibbons Middle School. But uh, yeah, I came in, I did kines for undergrad, kinesiology, which is a little bit of a non-traditional path uh, into public policy, I suppose. But yeah, I came here, I was originally in the BA actually, but then I switched into the MPP program because I was going abroad to Berlin, which we'll get into a little more later as we're talking about how I heard about Syrian Archive and worked with them. But uh, I switched into the MPP to make my schedule a little easier, but also because I wanted to get a little bit more of the practical skills that we learn within this program. Uh, a lot of, I think it's a lot more analysis based. I think the BA is definitely a really good program, but it tends to focus more on theory than practice. And I really like the practice aspect of the MPP program at Ben. I hope you'll send a copy of this episode to Mr. Paulus and tell him. That oh, for sure. Try. I've been meaning <laughs> to check in with him. That'll be a good excuse. Well, and so you mentioned, so you interned at the Syrian archives and that was not this summer, but two summers ago, correct? Yeah, 2019. And so what, how did you hear about it and how did you come to, to intern with them? So as a part of the uh, study abroad program that I did, there's also an, a following up internship. So the first, I was in Germany for five months, I believe. And the first three or four of those months, three and a half of those months were uh, taking classes I, at the center that I was studying abroad in, and then even a couple at uh, Humboldt University in Berlin. Sorry for, I was translating it in my head because that's not how you would say it in German. Um, and then they uh, helped with an internship placement and I guess I gave my list of my interests. So I was interested in something policy related because I was still in the 
I had just recently transitioned into the MPP at that point and uh, the Syrian archive came up and they sounded like they did really interesting work. And so I met with Hadi and Jeff, who are the co-directors and founders of the Syrian archive. And I ended up working there for a little over a month. And, and to quickly summarize, and please correct any of this that's wrong. So the Syrian archive started in 2014, I believe. And it is basically um, would um, comb through social media and find content that would uh, was documenting human rights violations in Syria. Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked a bit on some of that. And they also in moved into the digital advocacy space as well, which we, which is why we're talking to Dia later in the episode. Um, I worked on their investigation into attacks on medical facilities. So I was helping them develop a procedure to verify the incidents and geotag them. And all that goes offline because of the, uh, to protect the people who are posting that content as evidence. So I was doing like preliminary screenings and helping them to develop a data set so that they could use machine learning to identify some of the weapons being used in those videos and the like, and just start combing through the, uh, all the footage that they had. Cause I believe in 2019, they had over 3.3 million clips that they had archived and is a pretty small team. There's no way that they could get through all that on their own in a, at a quick rate, even with the help of their partners from other universities around the world. Not, not to ask too personal the question, but th- that sounds like hard and intense work. It is. <laughs> is that right? It is. Yeah. yeah. There's some um, pretty disturbing footage within those clips that people upload, but it needs to be watched by somebody so that hopefully eventually sometime down the line on the international stage, the perpetrators of those war crimes, international crimes can be held accountable. I will say there were also some moments of like showing humanity within the those clips. I remember there was an interview with a doctor and he was holding a kitten that had fallen asleep in his hand the whole for like the whole interview. So there there were some moments of light within the footage like that, but yeah, people do some pretty despicable things and organizations like Syrian Archive and other open source investigators exist to try to hold them accountable. Well, and so so this conversation that we're having with, with Dia Kayali, it, it kind of came out of all of these kind of, uh, you know, call it quote unquote debates. They're kind of culture war issues at this point about, about tech moderation, right? And so, you know, we have these really powerful platforms like Facebook, like Twitter, like YouTube that are kind of driving social change kind of for whether for the better or whether for the worse. And so they do that through the content that's uploaded by all those users, right? And all their members. And so the platforms are kind of caught in the middle of this kind of political fight with legislators. And, and I think it's, you know, I think organizations like Mnemonic, which kind of grew out of, out of the Syrian archives, I think these perspectives are really ones that that need to be taken into consideration. And I don't think they're kind of out there from a public, you know, when, when you hear these debates that are being had. And so, you know, I, I think 
uh, I'm really appreciative that, that you kind of brought this up because this is kind of a, a different angle to, to look at this tech moderation debate. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that the policies vary so much from nation to nation. And uh, as Dia mentions, the, the U.S. is way behind the curve on regulating the internet in general, let alone this space. But I think that, the yeah, those social media companies have an outsized influence because they also have a profit motivation in having some of this content on their platforms, but they can also be held liable for having some of this information on this their platform. So it's kind of a, a tough balance there. And there's the two themes that I kept thinking of as we were having our conversation with Dia were transparency and accountability. And I think that there is kind of a lack of both of those in this space. And it leads to different extremist ideas being treated differently and some of that content being lost, which makes it harder for organizations like Mnemonic and Syrian Archive to do their work. And Dia Kayali, so Dia is the Associate Director for Advocacy at Mnemonic, which again, as I mentioned, it's an organization that grew out of the Syrian archives to focus on human rights issues in various parts of the world. And Dia focuses their effort on real life impact, on the real life impact of policy decisions that are made by lawmakers and technology companies about content moderation and related topics. Dia has a law degree and has been doing this for a really long time. And so it's it's a complex topic. I learned a lot from our conversation with, with Dia, but just to kind of put you on the spot a little bit, you know, what do you think listeners need to know going into this conversation? To, to boil it down to the, the bare essentials, because I think Dia did a really great job of explaining a lot of the pretty complex co- uh, concepts in understandable ways. But the US has extremely outdated policies to regulate this space. And those policies are developed by policymakers who rely a lot on the social media companies as experts in the space. Even though the policy has kind of stagnated many years ago, uh, the the tech advocacy sector and this content moderation sector itself is a, a really developing space. I'm sure that you talked about Australia in your little intro before this pre-interview. But I think that that oversized influence and then going back to those themes of the lack of transparency and accountability are kind of important things to have in mind as you go into listening to the rest of the episode. Well, as I mentioned, I I learned a lot from from this conversation. And so without further ado, here is our interview with Dia Kayali. So Dia, we kind of start these with just kind of a broad, a broad question. And, and just, you know, there, there's a lot going on these days, especially in the, the policy areas in which you work. Um, but simply just, how are you feeling? Uh, it is a very interesting time to be working on anything internet related, particularly social media related. And, uh, you know, this is an area I've been working in for this has been about seven years now. And, um, you know, it's a little bit like being a hipster and having some cafe that you love that suddenly everybody discovers. Um, you know, I think a lot of us are like, well, you know, we've been coming here for seven years or 10 years or in some cases, 15 years. Um, and and we're, we're happy that other people have found it, but just want to make sure that they, uh, they have a sense of 
you know, what has already happened and in this space. So you said you've been in this space for a few years. Would you be willing to talk to us a little bit about like how you got into that space? Sure. Uh, so I started in what uh, some people call the digital rights space. It's just lots of different. And these days, it's, it's, it's uh, more likely to be called the tech policy space. Uh, I got my start at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, so that is actually one of the organizations that has been working on these issues the longest. And I uh, you know, went to law school and I was very interested in issues of surveillance. I am Syrian American, so this is something that uh, as, as someone with an Arab and Muslim background is very near and dear to me, unfortunately. So that's what got me interested in it. Um, and then at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I really got the chance to just be completely immersed in really the range of topics. Uh, you know, when, when we talk about tech policy these days, um, we're talking a lot about content moderation and social media platforms. But of course, uh, public conversations have encompassed surveillance. Um, facial recognition is another big topic, and that's something that I that I was working on many years ago. Um, and increasingly, you know, the, the the finer details of the policy, so the Communications Decency Act, um, Section 230 of that, and cybersecurity, all of that. So that's sort of how I got started, and I really honed in on platform accountability work and content moderation work around. Um, Oddly enough, the Facebook real names policy. Uh, so in 2014, transgender individuals and drag queens and many other groups were getting kicked off of Facebook en masse. And this became a big campaign with people actually doing protests in front of Facebook headquarters. And it was one of the first times that we actually saw a social media platform really being responsive to a campaign. So that was, that campaign was, started in September of 2014 and and my involvement in that area and and in social media policy has just increased since then. Amazing. So I think we're going to dive a little bit more into accountability later in the interview. But before we get there, uh, now you're at Mnemonic. So could you go into a little bit about uh, kind of what Mnemonic is and what it does within the human rights space as far as digital rights goes? Sure. So Mnemonic is the umbrella organization for three different archives. And in the space, it's often better known as Syrian Archive, because that is how we got our start. So um, it, it was started by Syrians and for Syrians to find and verify and archive documentation of the Syrian conflict. Um, one of the things that we often say is that there are far more hours of documentation of the conflict than there are actual hours of the conflict itself. And a lot of that content is found on social media platforms, in particular YouTube, but also Facebook and Twitter. And so Mnemonic finds that content, it, um, it has a process for verifying it and putting it in a more permanent archive so that it is available for all of the various justice initiatives that are going on right now. So of course, um, the UN has its own investigations, but also increasingly we're actually seeing um, that national governments that have universal jurisdiction are taking some of these cases to court. And so this content is, you know, it's one of the only ways to get that documentation because of course, um, you know, it's not as if governments have uh, uh, mutual legal assistance treaties with the Syrian government. So 
in places like Syria, um, the other two places where, where mnemonic is working now, uh, Yemen and Sudan, these are places where this documentation is really incredibly important and essential. And I came in to work on the policy side of things because unfortunately we've seen that this content is also getting rapidly deleted from social media platforms and getting deleted at a rate much faster than we can find, verify and archive it. And so uh, this is really an issue that, that we've been aware of for many years, but particularly since June of 2017, when Google announced it was using a machine learning algorithm to find so-called terrorist and violent extremist content, it's really been a crisis. Um, and so now we, we are really involved in all of these, these policy discussions, content moderation discussions, and um, legislative discussions, because increasingly this is a topic that lawmakers are looking at. Yeah, I think that's an excellent segue into kind of, you know, maybe to try to level set the discussion, because you mentioned a lot of these conversations are, are, are now starting, but I don't think they're very informed discussions. And I think that's both between, you know, from general public understanding to the actual policymakers who are who are trying to to kind of regulate this issue. And so I, I'm going to I'd love for you to kind of uh, correct me where I'm wrong. I'm going to try to dumb this down a little bit, just if, if someone's coming into this completely uh, just unaware of, of what's gone on. And so I'm, I'm going to try to do an incredibly dumbed down kind of version of this. And I'd love, love to have you correct me. But so kind of over the last 20 years, social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, they've popped up, they've grown exp exponentially. They allow people from all over the globe to connect and share content. That content ranges the whole spectrum of imaginations from cat pictures to evidence of war crimes. So the content reveals um, extremist ideas and, and might bring, bring them more into the mainstream, which, which can radicalize segments of the population. But it's also, from your all's point of view, it's useful evidence in documenting human rights violations. And I feel like that last part and what you all are, are involved in is not something that's, that's really considered among the general public enough. And so these platforms and policymakers are now trying to figure out what to do. Is that, am, am I kind of in a very dumbed down sense, is, is that basically it? Yeah, I think that's a fair high level summary of, of the quandary that we find ourselves in now. And so how has the issue evolved over time? Uh, so as I mentioned, you know, this has really come particularly into focus since the advent of automated detection of content that platforms want to take down for one reason or another. Um, so th this, these technologies evolved to detect child sexual exploitation content, um, something where there's pretty wide agreement on what that content is and why we want to take it down. Um, Unfortunately, it's now been transposed to other types of content and is increasingly popular. So as I mentioned in June of 2017, Google announced that it was going to be using machine learning algorithms to detect so-called terrorist and violent extremist content. The reason I say so-called is because there is, uh, as you may know, there's not actually any universally agreed definition of terrorism or of violent extremism. Um, there are some lists that are commonly referred to. So the UN um, sanctions list, as well as the US designation of, of foreign terrorist organizations. But there is really not wide agreement. And when you have a type of content that um, can often be on the line or, or has 
contextual implications, that's not a, a necessarily a very good candidate for automated detection. So, uh, and, and when I say automated detection, it's important to, to, to explain what I mean by machine learning algorithms. So this is a subset of artificial intelligence and it functions by getting a set of training data, being told, you know, here's what you're looking for, here are things like what you're looking for, now go out there and find it and teach yourself. Uh, that's the machine learning part. And so what that means is that once these uh, technologies are released onto a platform, they teach themselves. And it's very hard to understand what they're doing and why they're making the decisions that they're making. And just like any other area where this type of technology is being used, the data that goes in and the way that it's designed are incredibly important. And it's very easy, unfortunately, to build bias right into that algorithm. So we've heard a lot about this um, around the uh, facial recognition and predictive policing. This is no different. These algorithms are being fed with training data sets that as far as we can tell, um, you know, if you look at the UN sanctions list, if you look at the US designations of, of terrorist organizations, they are of course very, very biased towards um, content that is coming from Muslim majority countries, content that is coming from Arabic speaking countries. These lists are almost exclusively um, Islamic or Islamist groups. And uh, certainly there is very little inclusion of, for example, far right groups. This, is, this has been a, a big topic of discussion, particularly in, in recent weeks, you may have seen that Canada added several of these groups to their list. But these are not groups that are on um, that are on internationally recognized lists at this point. And so, uh, you know, what we see is that that bias is built in, and a lot of content from the the region that is actually not violative of policies at all gets removed. And at the same time, there is content that, of course, you know, we <laughs> I think there's pretty wide agreement. We don't want to see, for example, beheading videos. That content should get taken down. But it's also evidence. It's also documentation. And so there really should be a system in place for preserving that and for providing access to appropriate parties. Um, and there isn't. And so, you know, at this point, it really has reached a crisis level because this content is increasingly important. And not just in our region of the world. You know, um, we'll probably get into it a little bit more, but um, I think everybody in the US knows that the vast majority of people who were at the Capitol on January 6th and who have been apprehended were apprehended through their own social media posts um, or through, through posts from other people. So, you know, we have actually a, a domestic example of, of the importance of this type of content. Yeah, those are very, very touching points, especially in, in the current time, given the events of the last month. Uh, to move a little bit in direction, but stay in a similar vein, uh, one of the main ways that social media companies have uh, combated ISIS and Al-Qaeda in the past was through uh, deplatforming or removing their accounts from the service. Uh, this worked for some of their videos because they had branded their content, making it easier to identify for the algorithms that you had mentioned. Uh, but more recently in the news, Twitter removed President Trump's, Trump's Twitter account after the insurrection. And social media companies have done this with some other heads of state and politicians. Uh, do you think, see this as a viable strategy internationally for other heads of state spreading false information? Or can it even work for other factions like the far right? Yes, 
Absolutely. Um, this is something that uh, I think a lot of people, particularly outside of the U.S., where they feel that there's not necessarily the same level of, of attention or resources directed, have called for. Um, you know, uh, you're probably aware Facebook announced that it had this newsworthiness standard and that it was going to treat content from, from heads of state and other public figures differently because that's, that's newsworthy and they don't want to inhibit freedom of expression and, and, and people knowing what their leaders are saying. The problem with that assessment is that uh, many people who study speech as incitement to violence, so we're not talking just about hate speech, which there's not actually a, a, a really agreed upon definition of hate speech, but we're talking about speech that is likely to lead to offline violence or other types of harm. Um, many people have pointed out that it's actually more likely to lead to violence when it is a head of state as opposed to just you know, a random person um, posting objectionable content. So this really actually needs to be part of the assessment is how likely is, uh, is a post to, to lead to violence and how much is the position of the person posting that um, going to enhance that likelihood. You know, something that we have heard from a lot of the people who were at the Capitol on January 6th is well, President Trump told me to be there. Um, I, I listened to what he said and I, I was encouraged and, and I, I believed that I was doing my patriotic duty. That cannot be denied and it absolutely needs to be applied in other parts of the world. Um, you know, uh, I, I have been paying attention to what's going on in Myanmar and even with everything that has happened, even with all of the criticism that Facebook has gotten after the coup, uh, a Myanmar military television channel still had a, a, a page on Facebook and that page was up until the Wall Street Journal alerted Facebook to that. Um, so we know how the Myanmar military has used Facebook. Uh, this is clearly something that, that needs to be taken into account and that needs to be part of policies. Taking a, a step back from the inciting violence angle, but staying on the theme of public safety or public health, how has COVID impacted this issue of content moderation and kind of spreading of false information? That's a great question. The COVID policies have really marked a shift in how platforms deal with content and how that content relates to the, the offline world. Um, you know, I think there are unfortunately, again, many examples of COVID misinformation leading to offline harm. Um, there is famously the example of, of people that were injecting bleach um, because Trump said that that might help them. Um, I think Brazil is one of the most disturbing examples where uh, Jair Bolsonaro repeatedly just spread misinformation about COVID, about the risks, um, about mask wearing even. And so what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic is platforms really increasing their use of automated detection. And also at the same time, they actually um, were not able to work with as many human moderators. So they, they actually made a lot of disclaimers um, in March of last year about, look, we're probably gonna accidentally remove a lot more content because we are using automated detection and we don't have as many um, humans finding this content. Now, that being said, um, I think if you look at the policies and, and the ways that they changed around COVID misinformation, a lot of people, myself included, have asked, if you can pour that many resources into this problem, um, 
and take this seriously and understand that COVID misinformation leads to very real, um, real world harm, then you should be able to do that for other types of content. So, um, so it's really been an interesting shift to see both on the technical side, how platforms are dealing with it, um, on the public relations side, how they have been explaining those changes in detail in, in blog posts in their newsrooms. Um, and then finally, just on the, on the side of principles that they had broad agreement that, you know, at this time, we think that the risk of harm is uh, as important as free expression. You know, Facebook and Twitter in particular oftentimes talk about their commitment to free expression. Um, they less often are, are highlighting their commitment to really addressing this kind of offline harm. So I think it's been a, an important lesson in policy and in tools. You mentioned that they had started putting disclaimers when they started using more automated content moderation about how they might be taking down more or too many posts. Uh, is that like the main difference between uh, human versus automated content moderation? Or are there any other major differences between the two? Uh, in addition to potentially increasing, um, I shouldn't say potentially, uh, I think there's, it's pretty well documented that automated content moderation will lead to an increase in both false positives and false negatives. Um, one of the other differences is that the platforms were not able to, um, to consider appeals in the way that they, they had before. Um, that being said, uh, something that, that I find really interesting is, um, you know, one of the issues with automated moderation is that it really cannot take into account context. So, um, for example, there's a huge difference between someone posting a video of a bombing in Syria with injured civilians and saying, you know, and putting, for example, a, a caption or a title that says, look at these human rights abuses taking place in Syria, um, as opposed to someone posting that with no comment or someone posting it and saying, this is what happens um, when you are, uh, you know, an enemy of the state or something like that. So context obviously is incredibly important and ostensibly human content moderators are more able to assess context. Now that being said, I think it's really important to get across that the way that companies set up their content moderation, humans are actually trained and expected to behave as much like machines as possible. They have very little time in which to review the content that, that is put into their queue. Um, they have limited information they're not necessarily looking at, for example, all of the, the, con the comments to a post. Um, I say this in particular because uh, you may know that Facebook um, has asked the Facebook Oversight Board to assess its decision to deplatform Trump. And in Facebook's referral to the Facebook Oversight Board, they mentioned, um, we considered uh, the, the, the way that this was received. Um, this is also something that the Facebook Oversight Board has mentioned. Uh, so you do actually have to look at the impact, but that's not necessarily possible either for machines or for people. So um, well, there are definitely still benefits to having people doing the content moderation. It's also important to recognize that there just needs to be a whole new model and a whole new 
sort of priority. Um, and the priority should be human rights and it should be pouring in enough resources that we are, are thinking about all human rights. So freedom of expression, but also, for example, you know, the right to live or freedom of assembly and religion, which are things that are also threatened by content that is being posted on social media these days. Yeah, I'd love to, um, oh, go ahead. Um, oh, sorry, just one thing I, I, I should add is that uh, one of the other major differences that is always important to highlight is just the speed at which things can get removed by, um, by automated moderation. You know, again, um, we've seen it as really a crisis in the online open source investigation ecosystem that it's just thousands and thousands and thousands of videos. And if you look at the reporting from companies, um, they, they cite these statistics saying, you know, we're removing, for example, we're removing 98% of content before anybody even sees it. Uh, but what does that mean for all of the content that is improperly removed? I, I'd love to pivot a little bit to, you know, because there's this public versus private, you know, how, how should the private companies who are obviously, you know, have their own, um, you know, kind of competing priorities between profit and being, you know, um, productive member of society. Um, and then you have, you know, the, the, the discussions that are going on with legislators. And I, I thought in um, the article you wrote on Vice recently, you had a, and I'm going to uh, read it if that's okay, but I thought you had a really uh, good paragraph where you said, quote, it's beyond time for a meaningful debate about this in the United States. That meaningful debate isn't repeal section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects companies from liability for content posted by users. That kind of reactionary discussion will have results that are disastrous for freedom of expression, such as the European Union's nearly finalized terrorist content online regulation, which will lead to mass deletion of documentation of human rights abuses and other important content. But the answer is also not these companies have no responsibility to society and they're protected by the First Amendment and can therefore do whatever they want. And so I, I guess my question coming out of that is, how do you think that policymakers should be having this conversation? Well, you know, I think one of the starting points is really understanding what the impacts of, uh, of policy and tool decisions at companies are. And uh, one model that, that I've suggested and that I, I think there's some, some broader interest in is you know, when uh, uh, I'm originally from California and in California, um, when someone wants to build a new development, they have to do a very extensive um, uh, environmental impact review. So they have to understand, okay, you know, if I, if I put this house here and it's next to wetlands, then it's going to have a, a negative impact on um, maybe endangered species or something like that. So I think it's beyond time for platforms to be required to do that kind of assessment um, before they enter a market. And at this point, frankly, you know, for platforms like Facebook, they are already in a lot of very volatile markets. So, um, you know, pausing, taking a step back and doing really in-depth analyses of how their, um, how their platform has impacted, impacted human rights, how has it impacted safety, and, uh, you know, taking some steps to address those, those issues. So I think that would be a good first step is just requiring, um, requiring this type of assessment and also requiring transparency. Uh, and, you know, this is actually something that is being considered, uh, for example, as part of the Digital Services Act in the EU. Whereas here in the US uh, we are, and, and the EU has really been a leader in legislating the internet. 
whereas the U.S. sometimes it feels like is is kind of in the uh, uh, really far back in the Middle Ages, you know, still relying on things like, for example, the Third Communications Act. I mean, that was written, uh, I don't know how many years ago, but, but uh, a long time before most of us were using email every day. Um, so the U.S. has just these really outdated laws. They are not in line with how people are using the internet now. And so, you know, it's unsurprising that we are seeing these reactionary discussions about um, CDA 230. You know, we're, we're just seeing, uh, trying to address what is the clear immediate um, problem without getting to the roots of that problem. And, and so I think that's, that's one of the, the big concerns is uh, what are all the potential unintended consequences? And I think we could avoid some of those unintended consequences if we started with some, some, transparency, some transparency and some clarity on the role of these platforms uh, in human rights, in democracies, in societies in general. You've probably, you know, so our Senator in Virginia, Mark Warner, um, he's one of uh, three, I guess, co-patrons on, on, a, on a new bill that, that's kind of aimed at this. And so I, I, I'd love to ask if, if we could put you in, in Mark Warner's shoes, you know, what, what would you be, what would, what would you be doing? What would kind of be your priorities? How, or I guess, how would you go about tackling this? Yeah, so um, I, I should say, you know, just as a disclaimer, uh, I have reviewed some of the different CDA 230 proposals, um, including Senator Warner's. And uh, the, the legal analysis on that proposal in particular that I've seen, um, I, I tend to agree with saying that, you know, the unintended consequences from this proposal are going to be huge. Um, it, it's really going to, to impact smaller platforms much more than the big platforms. Um, I think there's a lot of justified concerns and we've seen those concerns play out, um, particularly from the, the Earn It Act and these other attempts um, to basically kick off sex workers from all of these platforms. We've, we've seen how this plays out. So that being said, I would really love to see, uh, as I said, a meaningful discussion that starts with forcing platforms to be more transparent, that starts with forcing platforms to do these assessments. Um, you know, there's a big, I think there is this underlying question about liability. And um, I'm not sure what the right tool is for trying to allow some form of liability for platforms. It's certainly not just getting rid of CDA 230. Um, I think there needs to be something more, uh, more delicate. We need a, a scalpel. We definitely do not need a hammer or an ax, which is what these proposals are. Um, so again, just starting with uh, requiring assessments from companies, um, requiring really detailed transparency. Uh, there's going to be something in the Digital Services Act about algorithmic transparency. So, um, you know, devising some sort of legislation around algorithmic transparency around assessments of markets, around transparency, around takedowns and policies. Um, I know that that's not politically expedient though. You know, I mean, that's the issue. Um, people wanna see a solution now and they wanna see a solution now because it is 2021 and these issues have not been addressed. I mean, we're really laboring under many, many years of policies that just say, you know, social media platforms um, and tech companies in general are making us a lot of money they're a huge export from the U.S. now, and we don't want to regulate them. Um, so we're kind of paying the price now if we had had the type of legislation that I'm arguing for um, three or four or five years ago, 
then we probably would be in a better position to know what is the legislation required now. Do we need to provide an avenue for people to sue companies? What does that look like? Um, how do we do that and still allow companies to make decisions about content moderation? Um, one other thing that I'll just mention from, from the DSA is that there are actually going to be special provisions for larger companies. I think that's something that, um, that legislators in the U.S. should also take into account. I, I think it makes perfect sense for there to be different rules for Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube as opposed to other small platforms that um, you know, have less users, have less uh, likelihood that they're going to incite violence. Um, although, another disclaimer, you know, we also have to take into account platforms like Parler that are basically designed to allow this, this type of communication. Um, so I know that's not a very satisfying and very lawyerly answer. Uh, and I think that's the problem. That's what we're running into is that nobody wants unsatisfying lawyerly answers. They want to see their legislators um, take action now because we are in a crisis state with social media platforms at this I, point. I feel like, too, that there's just and you've mentioned this, especially in the United States, that just, you know, we're dealing with with laws that were made before the Internet was even, um, you know, a part of our, our daily lives. And just building the organizational infrastructure within, you know, the the government to, to be able to regulate this, because, I mean, you, you watch, you know, the the, the public facing hearings on this, and, and it just doesn't inspire a lot of confidence that the know how within the government is is actually there. And so I wonder, you know, just how much of a of an opportunity this could be to try to build that infrastructure, so that it, it you know, the government is actually able to to address these issues because it just it just feels like every every single time this conversation happens the, the government just looks flat-footed oh absolutely i mean um I, I haven't watched all of the of the various hearings with social media platforms uh but i've watched some of them and they're frankly embarrassing you know i mean we have um we have people who have been in government for a long time and i i, I sometimes wonder if they have their own social media accounts or if they just have interns running them because they ask questions that are really nonsensical. Um, you know, I, I, and I think there, there is certainly a ray of hope with the new administration. Um, I think that there is some, there are some possibilities for, for doing better education of lawmakers. And, um, you know, I just wonder if there's appetite for that. I, I really hope that there is. Um, there are certainly lots of people and lots of organizations that are very ready to provide really high level, um, you know, relatively understandable explanations of some of the technology, of some of the, the policies. And that also is more needed now than ever because uh, the debates have to make sense. They have to be rooted in the reality of the technology, the reality of how people are using that technology. And, and right now they are very clearly not. It might be a, a big ask since you've been saying that they are behind the curve in, in terms of knowledge today. But uh, as technology like continues to grow and develop and content gets more sophisticated, as an example, like how deep fakes are being developed, like that technology uh, making this content harder to detect, how can policymakers keep up and kind of where do you see this issue of content moderation going in the future? Well, I certainly think that there needs to be more uh, more resources designated in the federal government 
to understanding technology to paying attention to the particularities. I mean, we know that, for example, the, the FCC has struggled um, to, to deal with net neutrality uh, in, a, in a fair way. There needs to be resources that, that help lawmakers understand some of these things. Um, you know, I think there was was some hope in the in the tech policy community that the, the Biden administration was going to devote increased resources. That seems like it's still a, a, a possibility. Um, but this is this is really important. I mean, uh, you know, for folks who've never done sort of DC lobbying or, or talking to, to policymakers, they have um, they are constantly getting briefings. Uh, they don't they don't write legislation and they're not experts on every topic. They don't write legislation just based on their surface level understanding. But for some reason, when it comes to, to technology related policy, it seems like they just don't have that same level of, uh, of background briefings. And so I think just ensuring that and, you know, maybe this is a, a maybe this is a professional field itself that also needs to, to grow. Um, people who do tech policy and who can explain it to, to people who are in government. Um, but it's, you know, to me, it's, it's definitely a question of resources, having those resources, having people who can explain, the, uh, at, again, at a very high level, the technology and, and translate those things for policymakers. Um, because another one of the things that is happening right now is that they rely on companies to explain these things to them. You know, we've seen them ask questions of companies that if they had asked someone in, um, in the digital rights field, they would have gotten a much more straightforward and much more understandable answer. Um, so I think it's just, uh, you know, it's about looking to the experts. It's about making um, fact-based policy. And that has, not been the, that has not been the thing for the last four years. So I personally still have hope that that is what we're gonna see going forward is, um, you know, evidence-based, knowledge-based tech policy um, that is looking to the experts for advice, um, looking to people for whom this is a full-time job, because uh, it is a full-time job to keep on top of, uh, of technology changes. And uh, kind of one, one final question before we get to our finisher. Uh, so kind of taking it back to what you said about uh, Senator Warner's proposal saying that it would disproportionately affect smaller uh, social media platforms. And then kind of bringing in that policymakers tend to rely on uh, the larger social media companies to explain kind of the policies that they should be implementing to them and their expertise. Uh, what considerations should these policymakers have in mind specifically surrounding the smaller social media companies? I feel like when uh, currently when policy is developed, it is really not looking closely enough at business models. And, um, you know, in some senses, that's a positive. You shouldn't allow a, a profit motive um, to trump, you know, <laughs> literally physical violence, um, pun intended. Uh, you, you can't, you can't say, well, Facebook wants to do, uh, these types of online advertising. So we're not going to restrict that because otherwise you won't have a Facebook. Um, that being said, uh, it is these big platforms that have been pushing against regulation for so long. They have had lobbyists in DC for a very long time. They have convinced many members of civil society, even that, that regulation would completely destroy their business models and thus destroy access to social media. Um, 
so, you know, they, they do bear, I think, a special responsibility. Um, and I think lawmakers need to take that into account. And they also just need to, uh, to understand, you know, how, what, what will happen, what are the incentives if you, for example, uh, you know, we mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation, the tariff content online regulation. So um, there are penalties for platforms that don't comply with provisions of that. And it is just inherently gonna be much easier for a platform like Facebook to uh, institute new technological means of, of finding something and trying to do it in a way that, uh, that won't harm free expression. And it will be harder for small platforms. So uh, you know, thinking of ways to even potentially assist those small platforms, um, you know, making uh, 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 information or, or technological support available to them, um, things like that, so that they aren't just, they don't just have the incentive of, we don't want to get in trouble, there are big penalties, and we're going to, we're just going to, you know, revert to removing as much content as possible so that we don't get in trouble. Um, so even, you know, another example, having different, uh, different levels of fines for different sizes of companies based on, on um, how big they are, how much profit they make. Um, I just think there's, there's a variety of ways that uh, lawmakers could think about this, but currently it doesn't seem like it's really much of the, the consideration in the US at all. Whereas um, unsurprisingly, the EU is already ahead of us <laughs> in this conversation. They are considering um, the, the different implications for big companies and small companies. Well, Dia, given the fact that we're a, a school of leadership and public policy, we, we always end these discussions with the same question with all of our guests. And it is, uh, what's a leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have shared with you as either an undergraduate or graduate student? Hmm. Uh, I would say that um, people, you know, uh, Surprisingly, because I, I often find myself in, uh, in spaces with people who pretty strongly disagree with my, my positions on, on some of these topics, um, but I also am potentially in a role where I'm, I'm organizing with them or I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to get something done in a multi-stakeholder forum. And what I've found is, uh, I guess, uh, two things. One, um, if you start with as much information as you can, that's always going to be a better foot to start on. So, um, for example, in this CDA 230 discussion, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people just have their ideas, they, they, they share them, and, and that's it. They're not providing all the background information, and they're not really facilitating a real discussion. Um, so I think, you know, just showing up with a, an open mind um, but giving people something to start from, uh, you know, giving them enough information to make informed decisions and uh, treating them as people who are going to be able to digest that information. Just making the, the assumption that everybody's coming from a, a, a good faith desire to, to solve these really thorny issues and, and just functioning in that way. Um, so it's the it's attitude and it's information that I think have really, uh, particularly in the, in the content moderation and platform accountability space that I'm working in, you know, a lot of times we have strong disagreements, but in, in these multi-stakeholder forums, in these big discussions, when I've approached it that way, we're still able to have meaningful discussions. And, um, you know, in 2021, being able to have meaningful, measured, logical discussions is really a, a luxury 
but it shouldn't be. It should be, um, particularly in public policy, it should be the standard. And I think that those two things can really help with that. Thanks so much to Dia Kayali for joining us. Thank you to Ben Feldman for both producing and being our co-host. And thank you to Ben Teese for helping out with production. We'll be back with another episode next week. Stay safe.